Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. I want to begin with this. It's a very interesting story. An open letter from respected national and provincial health experts to the Prime Minister is calling on Justin Trudeau to move toward minimizing and not eradicating COVID-19 while simultaneously engaging a balanced approach for society to resume its functioning. Now, there has been some disagreement expressed with the letter from other public health experts, but uh, I will tell you the uh, the people who signed this letter, co-signed this letter, are, uh, are major players in public health in this country, including the first uh, national public health officer. And my guest, uh, Dr. Vivek Goel, professor at the Dalla Lana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto, former president of Public Health Ontario and a signatory to the letter. Dr. Goel, thank you very much for taking the time. And uh, the fundamentals of this letter really are, did I express it properly, that it's time to start to reopen Canada's society, understand that COVID-19 is going to be with us for some period of time, we're not going to eradicate it, let's minimize the effects as much as possible as we wait for a, for a vaccine. That's right, and we are starting to reopen the economy, obviously, and uh, so far, so good for us. I think it's important to note that Canada and all of the provinces and territories have taken a very careful approach to reopening, unlike what we've seen uh, south of the border. Um, and certainly one thing is that's important is we continue to have a careful approach, but not to the point that we start to operate with our hands tied behind our backs. And in particular, we need to start to think about it as the risk of COVID-19 infection continues to go down, which of the public health measures that are still forecast to remain in place, we will hang on to, and and what would be the criteria for lifting them? For example, the wearing of masks or physical separation at two meters distance. Um, we know that for many uh, businesses, for many institutions, it's going to be very hard to operate with that degree of physical separation. And if the risk of transmission gets really low, maintaining that is going to result in its own consequences. The other thing that we really want to emphasize is we need to be ready for another wave if it does hit us. And we cannot just sit on our hands and say, we're going to do the same thing that we did in March over again. We know a lot more about the virus now, who gets affected, how to treat it. And we should think about the strategies that will ensure we can manage it to keep as much open as possible during a second wave. And that will involve vastly ramping up our capacity for testing, doing contact tracing, and also working with our population to help them with the fear that has developed about this virus so that um, people aren't afraid of going out and going about their daily business. Yeah, uh, people are paralyzed, some people. Yeah absolutely paralyzed at the thought of, uh, of COVID-19. Now, the letter, and I'm just quoting from it here, aiming to prevent or contain every case of COVID-19 is simply no longer sustainable at this stage of the pandemic. We need to accept that COVID-19 will be with us for some time and find ways to deal with it. That makes absolute sense to me, and yet you're being challenged by some of your colleagues in, uh, in public health, you and the other 17 signatories of this letter, 
who are suggesting exactly the opposite has to be true, that we should be down to zero uh, cases and then move forward. Uh, what do you say to your colleagues, and how much of a division of opinion is there in, in Canada's public uh, health uh, circles? So I, I think it's all a question of uh, nuance um, when you uh, start to frame it the way some of the debate is getting framed. Uh, you know, I think if we actually all sat in a room, you would find that everyone is kind of in agreement about what needs to be done. It is um, the kind of messaging that's being provided to the population and as, as we just talked about, dealing with the fear that people have. So when we're saying it's not uh, practical to maintain uh, a strategy trying to get to zero, we're simply trying to say, you know, this is what is we see as being feasible. Uh, it's certainly very laudable to have a goal of getting to zero, and people that want to continue to advocate for that, you know, they should really start to demonstrate how we would achieve that in a country like Canada, not in a small island nation like some of the examples that are used of that have been able to get to zero, um, and not in a country that sits next to one of the countries with the greatest amount of widespread, uh, widespread transmission. Even with the border controls that we have, we still have to have a degree of traffic moving back and forth with the United States in order for us to be able to continue to eat as a basic sort of thing. So for us to get down to zero is much, much more difficult than some of the other countries that are being uh, talked about. Yeah. We, and, and the cost of doing that uh, is, is going to be tremendous, as we saw with the financial statements this week. Yeah, we are exactly. We are at a time, are we not, where medicine and, uh, and commerce intersect. Yeah. And, you know... Uh, the strongest determinant of population health is socioeconomic status, right? And so medicine and commerce always intersect. Um, the best way to improving the health of the population is through improving the wealth of the population and addressing those who have the least. And, and you know, we see with COVID-19 um, where the hot spots are, it's the people that are working in essential occupations, where they live in denser housing. And so the economics and medicine have always intersected, and COVID-19 just makes it very apparent to us. Yeah, and this week it really uh, drove the point home. And people, people need to have, people need to be active as much as possible. And if we can at the same time take care of those who are most at risk, and I think we're doing a, the approach is sensible. Dr. Goel, thank you so much for the time. Good talking to you, sir. Thank you, Roy. All the best. Dr. Yvette Goel, professor of the Dalalana School of Public Health, University of Toronto, former president of Public Health Ontario, about the open letter sent to the Prime Minister. Federal Auditor General's office uh, issued a report a couple of days ago, and that is that some 34,000 foreign nationals slated for removal from Canada are here. And Canada Border Services Agency doesn't know where they are. Also, when CBSA cannot locate an individual sought for overstaying in this country or deported, uh, they often stop the search and they cancel the arrest warrant. So think about that. And this has been going on for years, by the way. This is not new to 2020. Actually, this report was uh, put together in 2019. 
But it's not new news, but it's really important news for us to know about. Carol McCalla is the principal author of the report for the Auditor General. Ms. McCalla, thank you very much for coming on the show. Why the investigation? What, what prompted it? Oh, with our audit, our audit of immigration removals yes, has been yes. planned for some time, and uh, it's following on an earlier audit that we did on asylum claims and how um, how quickly they were being processed by um, by the Immigration and Refugee Board. The the, the foreign nationals involved is thirty four thousand, and I, I believe it's the, the number was fifty thousand and thirty four thousand. They they couldn't find. Am I right about that? Yes, there's, uh, our audit identified 50,000 removal orders that were enforceable within CBSA's inventory. And of those two-thirds, uh, which is the 34,700 number, of those, they did not know the whereabouts of the individual that was subject to the removal order. That's stunning. Really, I mean, I've heard the, I've heard the story before, and I've talked about it before. The numbers of people who are in the country who should be removed, who, who have either uh, failed to show up for immigration refugee hearings or overstayed their visas or had been ordered deported uh, and then released and then disappeared. But just to hear 34,000 of some 34,700 or some 50,000, their whereabouts are unknown to CBSA. That is a stunning number to me anyway. It, it is a very large number. And it is a number that has been a persistent and ongoing issue for the agency, which is why we were we were we launched this audit because um, the agency is expecting that it will have an increase in the number of immigration removal orders to enforce in the coming years, and so we wanted to offer our insights to Parliament to provide recommendations on how the agency can can get a get a handle on this oh thank god for the auditor general's office um does this include significant numbers of individuals with a criminal background so of the 34,700 whose whereabouts are unknown the majority are failed refugee claimants but we did identify a number um, of these individuals who uh, were identified by the agency as a high priority for removal because of a criminal background or because of criminality had been identified uh, on their case. And were numbers of that particular number in this country for oh, a yes. significant um, period of time without being removed? Yes. So the uh, CBSA identified that there's close to 4,400 Hundred and fifty criminal cases whom it considers to be a top priority removal because of their past criminal convictions. And um, our audit had identified that of these criminal cases, um, for the individuals whose whereabouts they know where they are, they, the majority had been here for an average of five years. But for those for whom they've lost track, they've been close here to, they've been on CBSA's books for uh, double that time, 11 years. How does this happen? Well, there's a number of reasons why this happens. Um, in the case of where CBSA loses track of the individual, it's just how, as you had said, the individual fails to appear at, at a hearing. Um, they may have changed their address and have not notified CBSA of the change of address. But what was of concern to us is that CBSA is required to uh, 
investigate these cases, especially for criminal cases, each year to see if it can locate these individuals and then uh, go about enforcing the removal order. And we found that uh, for the majority of cases that we looked at, some 70% of them, CBSA had not been doing these annual reviews to see if they could be located. That's disturbing. It was a concern to us, and so we had made a recommendation that uh, CBSA does make, need to ensure that it does do the, uh, the required reviews of its cases, and so it can, especially of these high-priority cases for itself. Ms. McCallow, under what circumstances does CBSA stop looking for and then cancelling arrest warrants um, or doesn't issue an arrest warrant when it's the agency's purview to do so, at what point do they just stop? And this person who's deemed to be the, 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 uh, the, the foreign national who's deemed to, you know, order to leave the country is essentially off the books. So when CBSA has made the determination that it can no longer, um, locate an individual. It does issue an immigration warrant for their arrest. And in this way, it can work with local law enforcement who then, if they, if they do locate that person, can arrest the individual and bring them to CBSA's uh, attention. Um, it does have now authority, CBSA, to cancel these uh, warrants when it has determined that the individual may no longer be in the country. So when it does these annual reviews, to uh, try and locate them, if CBSA can confirm that the individual is no longer in the country, then they can cancel the immigration warrant for arrest. Doesn't this expose Canada as being vulnerable to human traffickers, to gang members, individuals who may be a national security threat? If, if this information, and it is public, if this information goes international, and it will, doesn't Canada become an attractive destination for people with ill intent? Well, I think CBSA has been doing a good job in, um, in monitoring individuals for enforcement. What we were, our concern here was that it's supposed to be um, regularly reviewing these cases where, for which it has lost track of the individuals. So on, the normal, on a normal basis, CBSA is monitoring cases for removal. We identified that it does need to have more quick, more quick access to, to information that affect the status of a removal order. So, for example, if an individual's refugee claim is refused, it gets that information quickly and it can act on it quickly. And um, our concern was that for a, a number of cases, it wasn't acting on that information quickly. So cases sat uh, inactive in CBSA's files for, for years in some cases. Who received your report? Our report goes directly to Parliament. So it was, it was uh, tabled in the House of Commons on Wednesday morning, and then it uh, is received by the ministers. And in this case, we, we received a response from the Minister of Public Safety, Bill Blair, who announced that the agency uh, welcomed our recommendations and is going to uh, conduct a review and ensure that it does organize itself to okay. get the highest priority cases 
uh, All right. to the attention of the officers and get them worked on. Ms. McCalla, thank you so much for the time. Good talking to you. Thanks for the work you do. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Carol McCalla from the Federal Auditor General's Office. This information from Ms. McCalla, the chief author of the report for the Auditor General, Federal Auditor General, very concerning, but not something that I haven't spoken about previously and on several occasions, more than several, with Scott Newark, former prosecutor, former senior policy advisor to a federal minister for public safety and former executive director of the Canadian Police Association. So the issue has a very long history, failing to show for hearings, to establish refugee claims, overstaying visa deadlines, and failing to appear for scheduled deportations is an issue. Huh? Staying, failing to, sh- Scott, uh, failing to show up for deportations. I've had trouble wrapping my head around that one from the very first time we spoke. If you're going to be deported and you fought deportation tooth and nail, and then you say to that person, well, now off you go and then come back on the day you're going to be deported, what are the chances they're not going to come back? Yeah, that's the real value, I think, in these Auditor General reports. They, uh, uh, I first started uh, actually being involved in some of them uh, years ago when I was helping the Minister of Public Safety. And what they are is they change them. You know, normally audits are financial analysis. These are systemic performance analyses. And um, I can tell you that the bureaucrats hate them because it exposes, um, you know, uh, systemic deficiencies, which also then point to things that need to be changed. Exactly like this excellent report has done, and as your uh, previous uh, uh, guest uh, noted, this is not the first time that the Auditor General's Office has commented on issues related to both screening but as well enforcement uh, and the deficiencies of it within the system. And this report, I think, simply confirms that. And what it really does, and what I think the real benefit of it is, is that it provides the data for, you know, the policy people to say, hey, we need to make some changes here because the current system isn't working. And trust me, and I've written about this extensively, as you've noted, uh, there are a lot of systemic deficiencies that we've identified that need to be fixed, and a report like this helps, hopefully, uh, support getting that done because it is absolutely critical. Yeah. I'm looking at a report that you wrote or a story you wrote uh, for Frontline in 2018. And I just want to read a few lines here. The ineffectiveness of Canada's system of removing non-citizens who've been ordered deported has increasingly been in the news, both for failed refugee claimants who've entered the country illegally and the ongoing reality of non-citizens convicted of serious crimes. Put succinctly, in Canada, there's clearly a difference between being ordered deported and actually being removed. Global News has provided excellent investigative reporting and analysis, confirming that only 1% of the 26,000 persons who've entered Canada between ports of entry illegally have actually been removed since January 2017. You wrote that in 2018. Yeah. Wow. And I first uh, came across this on uh, not the, uh, uh, you know, people entering uh, illegally between ports of entry, but years before that on the uh, criminality cases, and it was the way our system was set up. And the reason I came across it was because of cases I got involved with when I was at the Canadian Police Association, and there were crimes being committed by people who should have been deported out of Canada because of criminality. One was a career criminal named Clinton Gale who shot and killed a young Edmonton police officer named Todd Bayless. And I got, through the help of the uh, frontline officers' unions, 
I got in touch with those people, and I got to it was the beginning of my understanding of the systemic deficiencies. And, and Roy, our laws are, are frankly just so stupid and counterproductive in so many of these areas uh, that that's what's contributing to this problem. For example, somebody shows up at a port of entry. You know, the CBSA officers do the examination, and they determine that the person is inadmissible. Okay, well, they're allowed to say you're inadmissible to Canada. And by the way, you can appeal that, but you go, you're on the, the next plane out of here. But you know what? The law also, an in internal CBSA policy, also says, well, okay, I'm finding you inadmissible, but um, I can also let you into the country, and you can file your appeal once you're inside the country. And that's the prioritized CBSA policy. Duh. Okay, for people who are actually convicted of crimes, the way our legislation works in both the Immigration Refugee Protection Act and the Corrections and Conditional Release Act is that no person can be removed from Canada who's a non-citizen in defiance of any um, court order, which would include a sentence, or any uh, pending uh, uh, court proceeding. So, in other words, even though... Uh, the reason we have parole, early release from jail, is to help reintegrate somebody into society. But with people who are non-citizens who have been ordered deported, okay, we've made it clear, we don't want you part of our society, but you know what? They're still eligible for parole. How nonsensical is stunning. that? It's oh, really, really way, is. The one yeah, way that they can guarantee that they will never be removed is to commit a new crime. Because then the law kicks in and says, well, yep. you know, we can't get rid of you until the case is finished. We've yeah. actually created an incentive for people who are non-citizens who are committing crimes to commit more crimes. Let me ask you this question, and this is what I asked Ms. McCalla as well. Since this is now international news, and everybody has it, it's available everywhere, does Canada become a target and an inviting opportunity for people who have um, international uh, criminal acts in mind, like um, human I trafficking? Think, uh, not just simply this report, I think that's been something that's been realized for a long time. And as I say, um, we are, are literally creating incentives for the human smuggling industry and for the you know, uh, crime tourism industry to realize that Canada is a desired location because it's easy to get in and it's hard to get removed from here. So I think your, uh, your instinct on that is absolutely correct. But the whole point of this is, Roy, is that there are definitely changes that could be made and for years, uh, you know, many of us, you and me uh, both, and as well, the frontline union guys, have been recommending that we take some changes. Like, there's a severe shortage of frontline officers. I bet you that's the biggest reason why these cases aren't being followed up with, because in 2012, it was called the Deficit Reduction Action Plan. At CBSA, they cut not administrative personnel, which is what it was intended to do, but frontline personnel. So they don't have the people necessary to do the job, which is what the lady from the Auditor General's office, I think, was getting at on the cases not being followed up on. Okay, so so let me understand. Let me understand. For criminality. Let me understand. The people at CBSA with the 42-inch waistline sitting behind a desk, they kept their jobs. Correct. The frontline officers who do the investigating work, they were gone. Not all of them, but there was a disproportionate well, a number, number of, of operational people that were removed because of the de uh, Deficit Reduction yeah. Action Plan, known as DRAP. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And here's that the, has here's another... been commented on uh, before by another Auditor General's report about our failure to check yeah. um, uh, export of uh, products, including stolen vehicles. So let me ask you this question: You know what happens inside government? You were a senior. Yeah. 
policy advisor to a federal minister of public safety. So now the, the this, this this audit, this report uh, from Ms. McCalla and the Auditor General's office goes to Bill Blair's office, the public safety minister. He makes the usual pronouncements. They all do. Oh, thank you very much. This is very important. We'll act on it immediately. In real terms, what's going to happen with that report? Um, i give you, uh, based on my experience, and it was uh, the first one I was involved in was when Sheila Fraser was the Auditor General, and she did a brilliant she analysis of deficiencies in the long gun registry. Frankly, it depends on the minister, because um, the officials, I remember the, the deputy minister at the time telling me that the Auditor General was the most hated person in Ottawa, but they give them the report in advance, and you, if you look at them, the department always agrees with all the recommendations, okay, but they hate it, and it requires, and I believe the correct term is leadership, because what's so important about this is you've got some important, substantive, independently confirmed details about systemic non-performance. Minister, it's your job to make sure the fixes are done. Yeah. Reminds me of the person who said, I'm the leader, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Scott, Thank you so much. Okay, Roy. Uh, you provided us with so much information, and particularly on this particular situation. Well, you know for what? So it's long. time to, to start to fix it. Yes, sir, it is. Thank you, Scott. All the okay, best. Bye bye. Scott Newark. I'll just share this with you. Um, maybe 10 years ago, maybe a little longer. I'd ridden my motorcycle from uh, Ontario uh, up into the Adirondack Mountains of upstate New York. I happen to like Lake Placid a lot, where the 1980 Winter Olympics took place, gorgeous part of the world. So I went up there for 48 hours just for a ride and just to hang out for a couple of days and rode home. Bought a bottle of scotch while I was in Lake Placid, and I consumed, um, I don't know, a couple of glasses, two, three glasses in the, in the two and a half days that I was there. So anyway, I get on my bike and I ride back, and I'm crossing back into Canada at the Thousand Islands Crossing. And the customs officer uh, came up to me and said, are you bringing anything back illegally? Well, I'm on a motorcycle. I've got two saddlebags. <laughs> it's not a whole hell of a lot you can take with you. And I said, not really. Uh, he said, did you buy any alcohol? And I said, yeah, I did. And um, He said, well, let, go over for secondary inspection. So I did, and they found the bottle of scotch, and they had me go inside because I hadn't been over quite long enough to qualify. So what they did was they put the bottle of scotch on the counter, and then two officers, being paid, you know, by you and me, investigated the bottle. And they did this by taking a ruler and standing the ruler vertically beside the bottle of scotch, and between them determining how much of the scotch I had consumed, and then charging me duty on the remainder of the scotch in the bottle. I was either going, <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, I was either going to pay the duty on what remained in that bottle or they were going to flush it down the drain. And all I remember saying is, does your mother know what you do for a living? We'll come back with our good friend Matthew Fisher on the Roy Green Show. We're ready for Beauties and the Beast with Catherine Swift, workingcanadians.ca. Former President and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, Linda Leatherdale. Former Money Editor of the Toronto Sun, now Vice President of Cambria, Canada. Michelle Simpson was a Liberal Member of Parliament and sat beside Justin Trudeau day after day after day after day. 
during question period and uh, enjoyed every moment of it. <laughs> and listen, Thanks I'm almost on vacation. <laughs> I, well, I'm 20 minutes away from vacation. I can't help it. The frontal lobes have shut down. How are you all three? Great, Roy. Great. Thanks, Roy. Yeah. I'm okay, fine. I want to start. One of the questions that I want to run by you, and uh, there's so much excitement. Whenever you guys come on the air, there's almost so much excitement. Um, I want to start with Michelle because you know the man better than most. And the question that's been, you know, it's making the, the, the circuit is, will there be a snap federal election? Is that going to happen? Will Mr. Trudeau look at the landscape Look at a new conservative leader. Well, probably wait until the conservatives have a leader. Look at the landscape. Look at what's going on around him and say, this is an opportunity. I can't uh, bypass. We're going to have a slap election. Is that? Do you expect that at all, Michelle? Oh, I think it's quite possible. But more towards September, October, it's pretty hard to uh, trigger an election or uh, provoke one when Parliament isn't sitting. And in the midst of his own personal scandal and ethics investigation, I think it would be, uh, it would really not work for him until the fall. Towards when he has to turn, start turning the taps off, CERB and some of the other subsidies that Canadians are receiving. Yeah, because we don't have the money. We just do not have the money. Uh, Linda, one of the uh, one of the uh, things that that I noticed, and I wrote my uh, blog piece on it, is the parallels that exist between Pierre Trudeau and Justin Trudeau. In 1968, it was uh, Beatlemania and then Trudeau mania, and uh, Pierre Trudeau was elected with a massive majority government. If you took all the opposition party seats and combined them, they didn't come close to the Liberals' total. And then four years later, in 1972, Pierre Trudeau was reduced to a minority government. Hey, does that sound familiar? And then two years after that, in 1974, they engineered another election, and Pierre Trudeau was returned with a majority government. I'm suspecting that uh, his son is hoping for the same kind of scenario. Do you believe we're going to have a snap federal election? And do you think it'll result in a majority liberal government? God, Roy, um, you know, anything's possible. Definitely he's riding high right now because of this whole COVID madness and everybody loves him because he's just, you know, money left, right, and center. But I think people should sit back and look at the most recent scandal, which is the WE movement and uh, what, um, you know, ethics comes into this one more time. And, Roy, you outlined, I think, in a number of your blocks, a number of cases where, you know, I think it's called entitlement and certainly not... our tax dollars, those are our tax dollars. So I, I, I would say if there is a snap election, please think about this and think about our little snapshot fiscal plan. We are in big, as Catherine would say, doo-doo. It's, it's unbelievable the debt that we have accumulated. And whoever does take over if there was a snap election, it's going to be an economic tsunami that's going to be rolling over Canada and perhaps the world. So, Catherine, do we go from snapshot to snap election? <laughs> well, thank you, Linda, for quoting my technical economic uh, term of doo-doo. Um, yeah, I, I would have thought we were going to have a snap fall election a week ago. Today, I'm not so sure with this whole we fiasco. I remember when the SNC-Lavalin really hit the fan. It was early last year, uh, so months and months before 
the um, election was had been scheduled for October, and the the Liberals fell in the polls precipitously. Um, if an election had been held then, they, it would probably be a conservative government. They had a few months to recover from it, uh, and indeed they sort of recovered. They got a minority, but they, you know they did get that minority. So this time around, you know, I think the we thing is going to have legs. It already has legs. It seems to be infecting half the cabinet, for goodness sakes, and they didn't even have the sense or decency to recuse themselves from the decision and so on. So I think that's going to have legs for a while. I also think um, uh, that the economy is in the tank right now, and that will continue for quite a while. And if you look historically, any government, when the economy's bad, People are grumpy. People are miserable. They, you know, they're they're not they're not keen on reelecting government. So mm-hmm. that is going to and that's going to persist for quite some time. We're going to have a yeah. long time crawling out of this mess. As of Michelle COVID, said, when the serve runs the out, that the government spent so much of our money that we're going to have to deal our way out of that debt too. So I think yeah. maybe spring at the earliest. Okay, I want to get to another point here because we talk about the we situation. I've talked about it a great deal this weekend. And I saw a tweet from you, Michelle, and somebody tweeted out, well, what about Peter McKay? Peter McKay's wife supposedly or reportedly received a speaking fee from, from, from uh, we, and your response, Michelle, was what? So what? Peter McKay wasn't involved, none of the conservatives, in this decision, handing almost a billion dollars. So, you know, if... if Anyone else makes money in another party, that's up to them. They didn't do anything wrong. There's no conflict of interest. And uh, I, I don't get the point when they say, oh, we got to have this big investigation into all these other conservatives, Aaron O'Toole, and they're all missing the point. So well, not the government. Though, when you look at it, I, 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 as this thing has unfolded, when I didn't realize, because my kids are well out of school, mind you, I've got grandkids now coming into school, so maybe I will be facing it with them, but yeah, the we thing was nowhere near uh, as ubiquitous in our school system when my kids were little. I knew of the organization, sure, sure, I knew they had these rallies and so on. Tons of people have spoken at their rallies over the years, and they are very infiltrated. Apparently, Aaron O'Toole also spoke. It happened to be at one of his kids' classes. I spoke to my kids' classes back in the day, too, if they asked me to, because I had a public profile and so on. So I suspect you'll find quite a ton of people, not just politicians, but entertainment you know, people and so on, have well, spoken there, at there, we rallies over the years. Catherine, there have been some, uh, been some uh, tweets and some, uh, some news stories about speakers who yeah. spoke at, uh, at we and were told directly, they say, they were told directly, no, we don't pay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, clearly they pay very selectively. <laughs> I have a question here, and I, I can't claim it as my own. It was a source who direct messaged me on Twitter, and the source said, how come it's Margaret Trudeau now when it really is Margaret Kemper? <laughs> I don't know. That's where the money it's is. There. <laughs> just, just, what's Kemper just, doing right now just got any money that's just a message it. I received that's, that's all it was um, Michelle how, how would uh, again you know the man how's, how, he's, how do you think he's handling this he's been through two of these ethics investigations and hasn't well one was conflict of interest and then the other one was ethics if I know that correct if I have it correctly but he didn't come out well in either one of them, and here he is again, to use Catherine's 
technical term, the prime minister seems to have this just absolutely uh, down pat skill of stepping in the doo-doo. And it's strike three potentially here. How do you think he's taking this? I think in an arrogant manner that knowing the man, uh, this is a, a pain in, in the butt that he doesn't need, and he doesn't believe in his heart of hearts that he deserves. Because deep down, he is believing he did the right thing and he was doing all this great work. And no, uh, there wouldn't be a lot of remorse. Uh, are we creating some real political chasms here? Are, is is, is the, um, the, the political loyalty becoming deeper and deeper ingrained? In other words, if you're a liberal supporter, Justin Trudeau supporter, you are now absolutely firmly convinced it is your life's mission to defend this man and get him reelected. If you're a conservative supporter or a member of the conservative party, as our friend Catherine is, is it your life's mission to get him out of there and get the conservatives in? If it's, if you're an NDP member, as Linda is, <laughs> My jaw is hanging open. If you're, <laughs> if you're a member of the New Democrats, uh, is it is it a, or, or if you're a supporter of the New Democrats, has it become a mission? In other words, to 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 elect Jagmeet Singh, have the have the, uh, the the schisms become deeper and wider in Canadian politics now? Do you think anybody? I think they have. Yep. Uh, I think I think social media has contributed to this, where everybody's on there with their opinions, and the more extreme opinions tend to get sort of rewarded by being retweeted and on and on and on. But I can say, from my standpoint, yeah, I'm a conservative. Frankly, philosophically, I am a classic liberal. If if you look up the definition of liberal, I'm actually a classic liberal. But that that you know that's sort of gone out the window with the current liberals because a classic liberal values free speech individual freedoms, uh, fiscal sanity, and so on and so forth. And that is not the hallmark of the people that, you know, hold that label today. But when I was CFIB president, I criticized conservatives if they did something stupid, just as often as I criticized liberals or NDP. Because for me, it was all about the policy. And all about, was this a good policy for Canada, for small business, of course, you know, and, or not. And, and so, but, but yeah, I do think people are being horribly polarized these days. And when I see people defending Trudeau and how the extremes to which they have to go to, <laughs> to defend him, I go, wow. I mean, are you, are you absolutely mentally ill? Or <laughs> because you, you can't possibly look yourself in the mirror and, and say those kinds of outrageous things, to my way of thinking. I know I couldn't. And if, if a conservative today said something dumb, I would have no problems going on, you know, social media. Or you're now you've done, or you've, you've, done, you've done it. Dumb. You've done it, and I'll tell you, there have been times, for example, when I interviewed Andrew Scheer, and I was rough on uh, Mr. Scheer, um, and I would hear from conservatives saying, oh, you're just a liberal supporter, you're yeah, just a, yeah. you know, you're a socialist. And and, and the word was, uh, the word you used was, uh, what was that uh, word again? I, they came in and went, when people are just focused on one party. Help me out, Catherine, you used it, it's a simple word. It, it, it's just as, as huh? combative. No, no, you had you used the word. 
Anyway, uh, I got I got accused of being, uh, you know, a left winger and, and a liberal supporter because I challenged uh, Andrew Scheer. If I if you say something about uh, Justin Trudeau, then you're, uh, you know, then you're a neocon. And if you challenge the NDP, then you must be a Trump supporter. And it, we are just living in a world of extremes. But it's also a world of, of simplis, simplistic thinking, because, frankly, any party or, or any politician both warrants compliments and criticism, depending on what they're doing. I don't know a human being that doesn't at times deserve both. Okay. And, and if, you, if you put somebody in a, on a pedestal or you constantly vilify them, you're bound to be wrong in both instances. Yeah, yeah. You you cannot you cannot root for a party. Uh, it, it doesn't work. You you have to have a you know if you have a philosophy that's fine. But if you're rooting for a party, eventually you're going to be extremely disappointed. It's just just a fact of life. And when you hear the numbers, three hundred and forty three billion dollar deficit, uh, more than a trillion national debt. And I know it's COVID nineteen. It's pandemic time. People needed assistance. But what do those numbers represent to you? We have about three and a half minutes, so a minute for each of you. Linda, what, why don't you start us off? What do those numbers say to you? You know, these are unprecedented times, no, no doubt about it. But, Roy, come on. We fought so hard um, for, for control, fighting deficits, debt, get the debt under control. I look at these numbers, and I, I, I'm just, I want to faint. And when you say $343 billion is a deficit, it's actually closer to $500 billion when you... It, a snapshot is right. I don't think it's a snapshot. It doesn't go back. It doesn't go forward. It just looks at now. And when I look at the total debt, one over one trillion dollars, um, it's it's just I want to faint. Um, I know that they keep on saying to be recovery. We're going to get out of this. But look at the revenue is down by seventy two billion or twenty one percent. And when you look at a percentage of GDP, how are we coming out of this, Roy? And when you say a snap election, whoever gets inherited this, we need some very smart people at the table to, <coughs> and, to handle this. And, Catherine, one of the things that we need is people to invest in this country, international money to come and invest in this country. We talked about this yesterday on the program, and that's going to be a difficult thing to accomplish because we're so overregulated. We have interprovincial trade barriers. It's difficult to attract international money to Canada these days. Oh, absolutely. And, I mean, a number of things struck me about the statement. The, the magnitude of it didn't really shock me terribly because I knew we were on track to get in, you know, roughly in that ballpark. But I think one thing to keep in mind is this government has consistently lied about their financial position uh, every single year, every single update, every single financial statement. Uh, so it, this is probably low bulk uh, relative to what it's actually going to be, which is even more frightening. Um, but what bothers me maybe even more, certainly as much, is that uh, Mono alluded to um, the plan, uh, feeble uh, and threadbare as it is, to get out of this and talked about the green economy. If, if we are dependent on industries that need government subsidy to even exist, which is what the whole green thing, they don't, they don't, it doesn't pay for itself. It doesn't make money. If we're going to keep stiffing in a yeah. policy sense, and you just alluded to it, Roy, about throwing, you know, rejecting um, foreign investment and domestic investment for that matter, um, if we're going to keep refusing the businesses who actually make a profit, yeah. pay gobs of taxes, employ people who in turn pay gobs of taxes Catherine, to government, we're cooked. In terms, I have of to give I have to give Michelle sixty seconds here to wrap it up. Michelle, go ahead, please. Well, I certainly thought that it the term snapshot was flip. 
and I'm with Catherine, I wasn't shocked. But what really upset me was there was no real plan. Exactly. On how we're going to get out of this. Everyone says green economy like it's going to be the magic wand. And I don't believe that for one second. So I was quite discouraged. All right. I have to thank you all three for uh, today. And we'll have you back soon. And uh, I'm going on vacation. I'm going on vacation now. I'm gone. (laughs) We've known that for a while, Roy. (laughs) I know. Well, okay. It's It's just part of life. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you, Linda. Thank you, Michelle. We'll talk soon. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.